and welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where we look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest today is Michael Perlman, who played Jason Pembroke during the first season of Charleston Charge, which ran on CBS in the 1984-85 season. The show was canceled following the first season. However, it did find new life in first-run syndication two years later with a new family, the Powells. Michael was a lone cast member from the first season to take part in the premiere episode of the second one. He tells me the differences of the two families and that experience of working on the premiere episode of the second season. The topic of Scott Bayo does come up. However, this interview was recorded before Nicole Eggers allegations. We do discuss Alexander Polinsky who played Adam Powell. Michael also catches me up on what he's been doing post acting career. We talk a little bit about hockey also as well as the Olympics that's coming up this week. Here's my conversation with Michael. And helping me relive my youth today is Michael Perlman. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, so um, for those who don't know what you're up to these days, can you just fill in uh, the listeners? Well, sure. Um, you know, uh, my acting career actually pretty much ended when I went off to college at USC in Los Angeles when I was about 17 years old. Uh, I uh, was interested in getting behind the scenes in the entertainment industry. I explored, you know, movies, film, and music. But um, eventually, uh, I graduated from college, and I went off, moved to Wyoming in 1996, and I've spent uh, more than the last 20 years living in Wyoming. I now live in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where I uh, work in the private sector and have three children and a wife and, and a family and a fairly normal lifestyle. Yeah. So how did you uh, how did you land in Wyoming? Um, well, the way I landed in Wyoming was this: I uh, I, gra- I uh, graduated from New York University in uh, 1995, and I didn't have a full time job, but I loved to ski, so I, I got a a retail job in New York City working on the floor of a ski shop at a well-known high-end sporting goods store. And while I was doing that, I, I was encouraged by a coworker, a co-worker friend of mine to uh, maybe make the jump and move to the real mountains of uh, the West, which is something I'd always dreamed of. So I took that opportunity and uh, moved out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming in the winter of 1996-97. There was a ton of snowfall and I uh, really liked the mountain culture and I liked uh, I really liked skiing and it fulfilled my passion and I really enjoyed it and I stayed there for a better part of 12 years. I eventually worked in, uh, in journalism in the community and I was the sports editor of the Jackson Hole newspaper for about six years and uh, that's where I met my wife. Yeah, that's great. I've I've never been skiing before in my life. Last year was the first time I actually went to Hunter Mountain and we went tubing, and that was like the first time I actually uh, did that. So always wanted to do it, but haven't quite yet. <laughs> I grew up skiing Hunter Mountain. As a matter of fact, that was one of my one of my stopping grounds when I was a kid, and and that's a sport that my family did when I was growing up, and I always loved it, and, and that was probably my second favorite thing to do besides act. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I can't do either, so uh, you're you're ahead of me in both of those. <laughs> yeah. So um, now going going way back, uh, how did you get involved in acting? Okay, so um, I got involved in acting as a sort of uh, it, it was sort of a family member knew a friend thing. I was very young, and uh, when I was about. 
four, I want to say, and I was about six years old, and my uh, my cousin had a friend that knew a management company that was looking for little redheaded kids to do commercials. And, uh, my brother was a little redheaded kid, so my mom agreed to bring him into this management company, and they signed him on, and she said, oh, I also have this other son, and he'd really be interested in doing it too. And so they said, sure, bring him in too, and that was me. And uh, my brother did uh, commercials and some, you know, modeling and print work for a little while, and uh, he wasn't really that into it. He didn't have the patience. He wasn't that interested. And um, maybe you've talked—I don't know if you've talked about this with other people that you've interviewed—but it takes a certain type of personality, a kid's but a certain kind of personality to have to be able to do the work that's required. Uh, on the set and in, in the world uh, around adults, and I happened to have that and, and, and enjoyed doing it, so I stuck with it, and that eventually led to me being signed um, from this management company to an agent full time. Uh, commercials were the first thing, and and then eventually it was uh, I did some stage work in New York City and uh, television movies and and so on, and I, I was fortunate enough to get a few good roles that. Uh, you know, the biggest being Charles in Charge. You know, speaking of Charles in Charge, I mean, I didn't watch, I'll, I'll admit, when it was first on, when when, when that was your season with uh, the the Pembrokes, I caught it in syndication. And sure. when they when they added in syndication, they, you know, obviously put your season in there as well, you know, during the rerun. So and I wasn't very familiar that there was a, a first family. So I saw that and it was kind of like thrown, you know, that, Wait, Charles looks Absolutely. different, and you know there are th- you know three other different kids here, and why is uh, what's his name from Animal House here? And it, it, it was very it was very strange. Yeah, exactly. It was strange, but the personalities of the kids could not be any different, and that's it. Kind of drew me to your season because there were three totally different personalities that were, you know, like different, and I thought. It could have lasted longer than I, the one season I found out that you guys got canceled and the whole background story. So talk a little bit about like kind of the differences of the two families. I don't know if you watched the later seasons at all, but I, you know I, I, I did. I, I saw enough, not many of them, but enough of them to get the, the to get the changes. Right. And you're absolutely right that there was a very different sort of vibe in both shows. And um, you know, let me let me just sort of frame it for you a little bit. Um, our, uh, the first season of Charles in Charge ran in uh, 1984 1985. It was on CBS. Um, this was prior to the Fox Network being in existence. Right. And really, uh, um, cable television penetration in the mid-'80s was not as great. So network television got a lot more eyeballs at that time. Um, we were modeled after the t- t- typical and traditional family-oriented sitcom. You know, the... Um, and the creator of the show, whose name was um, a gentleman named Michael Jacobs, who went on to create Boy Meets World, right. and he created a, tel- a TV show called Dinosaurs that aired for a while. Oh, of course. Really well, Michael Jacobs' idea was that this was a family show, and he wanted the focus to be on Charles's sort of interactions with the family and having the kids be sort of, and the parents to some degree, be a central part of the show. And so the storylines for the 22 episodes that we were on focused a lot on Charles and his relationship with the family. Um, Buddy, his friend, Williams, was a central character, but he wasn't integrated into the storylines quite as deeply. Right. When the show uh, was canceled and it went off the air for, uh, I want to say, uh, a 
off. He was off the air for a full year, full season, 85, 86. I believe 86, 87, I feel like was the first season in, in a, uh, of the syndicated run. When, they, when it was bought into syndication um, and they brought it back, um, they re, sort of retooled the show. And while well, they wrote in a new family with two girls and a boy, the focus of the show sort of shifted to episodes that were focused more on Scott and Willie and their sort of life with the kids being sort of a little more secondary characters. And does that make sense, or does that, does that, does that sort of jive with what you saw? Oh, I, I, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And, it, it, and, and, so, and it, so the storylines were a little bit different, and there was less of that family sitcom kind of like lessons learned. You know, this is a very traditional type of show that happened a lot in the 80s. You saw this kind of writing through a lot of different, you know, shows that we were on at, at the time. Go ahead. And what's what's kind of funny is like you you mentioned how it, they kind of switched and made you know uh, Charles and Buddy the you know central characters and I I kind of have like it's obviously not a scientific equation but uh, I call it the Buddy Lembeck effect how a character started off one way is kind of like the sidekick friends you know he was a, a little quirky you know and just made him a full blown like lunatic crazy character Correct. towards the end. And you see that in other shows, like with Screech and, you know, Saved by the Bell, he started one way and went totally crazy, you know, uh, like Carlton on Fresh Prince. You see these characters, they start off one way, you know, they're there for a little bit of comedic relief, and then they totally just kind of take over, you know, towards the latter half of the series. I would, I would agree with you there, and I think that they found that, oh, you know, Blank's character was really popular, and they were getting a lot of laughs from you know him being more and more outrageous and so they wrote the show around that yeah and so. like yeah and like your relationship especially with charles had a different you know meaning as opposed to you know lila and and, and douglas yeah. a little bit you know yeah, I, I would, you're very astute or you've watched the show quite a bit and that was definitely a um that came from the from michael jacobs our creator and head writer i think that he sort of wrote the Jason Pembroke character as a bit of himself, you know, as a kid. And, you know, Jason was the character that sort of had the strongest bond with Charles, at least that first season. And, uh, and some of the uh, scripts and the episodes were sort of reflected that. But, um, yeah, was, you know, that was a really good, that was a really good family environment in that, in that show. And, and, you know, I had never done a, 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 a you know a, a sitcom a weekly show in front of a live audience, and that was a learning experience for me too. Um, at the age of eleven, twelve. Right, and that was like obviously probably the traditional. You get the script Monday, and you like film on Friday, correct? Correct. Standard um, Monday through Friday week. You know, we'd have rewrites during the week. Sometimes there'd be edits, but it was almost always uh, taped in front of a live audience. I think there was maybe two episodes out of the 22 that I did that they did not tape in front of a live audience. One was because it required some effects that were not, you know, suitable for doing in front of the camera, uh, in front of live cameras, and the other one was because they didn't have a good script in place. It was a, it was a tough that episode didn't wasn't falling into place that week, and they ended up canceling the live the live taping and just uh, doing it recording it. Right, and what I remember, like I had uh, Jerry Levine on uh, like a couple months mm-hmm. ago. You know, uh, cousin, oh, Jerry, sure. yeah, cousin okay. Elliot, yeah, who's now has yeah, gone on to great director. Human being. Yeah, and I, I remember Ruma Clanahan played your grandmother on the show, correct? Yes, 
That is correct. Um, yeah. Another very sweet woman who was absolutely a pleasure to work with. Uh, yeah, that, that's what I hear from like everyone who's worked with her. You know, Golden Girls obviously was you know fantastic show. Uh, <laughs> but like, what's interesting, like you and April and Jonathan all kind of stepped away from the entertainment uh, field while uh, the other three uh, kids kind of pursued and kind of went into acting, you know, stayed in acting, Nicole, obviously, with uh, Baywatch, and I, th- I believe Josie went on to a ton of Lifetime movies on Beverly Hills, and Alex does a lot of voiceover work, so they kind of stayed in, in into the business. That's true, um, and, you know, there's something interesting to point out, which I'm not sure you're aware of this, um, and a lot of people aren't, is when they were casting Charles in Charge, they were, you know, this was at a, at a time when they would often cast network shows both in New York and in Los Angeles. And I, I don't think that's the case so much anymore. They almost exclusively cast these shows in Los Angeles. So what ended up happening is both myself, all three of us, myself, Jonathan, and April, were all originally were New York actors that were that they liked, and they brought us out to LA to screen test at the very, you know, when they were to sort of the final picks, trying to figure out which combination of kids would work best. So they flew us all out to California and put us up in a hotel and we read with each other and with different combinations of other actors and actresses, and we were fully aware that not all of us would either get it or not. We were a little bit surprised when they booked all three of us as New York actors and, you know, for all three of the kid roles. So the lead up to this is that it's both, not, not all of us were immersed in the LA acting or the LA entertainment industry. Um, when this was going on and afterwards. And I think that's part of the reason why none of us stayed in there. I mean, there's other factors as well. Jonathan um, has an interesting story. I'm not sure he's probably going to want to rehash it, but right. he did some work after that. And uh, but uh, uh, other passions, and he's been very successful in his particular niche passion, without, you know, which is automobiles and started its own company where he basically customizes um, the high-end customizations of Toyota FJ Cruisers and other vehicles as well. Oh, that's interesting. And, yeah, and April, um, who I haven't spoken to in a very long time, um, just, I think, had a lot of interests, other interests, and uh, went on to get an advanced degree, and I believe she works in, as a private mental health counselor somewhere, and I'm not sure exactly where she is anymore. She's in, she was in Oregon for a while, but she may not be there anymore. I'm not, I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask if you kept in touch with anyone from the cast. Um, so, uh, out, out of that cast, uh, I've sp- I spoke to Jonathan a few years ago. I reached out and found him online and spoke to him and caught up with him, and that was good. Uh, I have not spoken to April in probably s- since I was living in Los Angeles in the early 90s. Wow, okay. Uh, I uh, do keep in touch with Willie Ames through social media and actually uh, actually saw Willie uh, earlier this year uh, with his new wife. He lives in Vancouver with his wife who's Canadian. And I was in Vancouver for a work conference and we had dinner and had a really good catching up. And the only other person that I really keep in touch with is a mother um, just on social media. Her name is Julie Cobb. Right. And her uh, her late father was a very famous actor named Lee J. Cobb. Yes, right. Yeah. And Julie is, uh, is 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 a wonderful woman. I just haven't seen her in a while, but uh, she she was a very a, a very lovely person. Is a very lovely person. Right. And so, no really interaction with Scott Baio since the show. No, 
you know, I, I since since my show, since it ended with me, I went back to the uh, I, I went to the, there was a hundredth anniversary episode celebration. They invited me to, and I went back and saw Scott at that. And I believe that was the last time I did not run into him in LA when I lived there in the early nineties. I started college at USC and, and lived in LA from nineteen ninety to about ninety three. And didn't see him out there, and so I haven't had any direct interaction with him since then. And you know, his life and his career has taken a sort of a different path as well. Right. He's decided to, you know, that you know, put politics at the forefront of his sort of public persona, and um, that's his choice. Yeah. Did you? I mean, obviously you're much younger, but did you sense like his uh, political tones when he was doing the show? No, I, I didn't. Um, I can tell you that um, his um, his dad, his father Mario, was a strong presence on the show, okay. and you know had sort of a straight shooter, law and order background, for lack of a better. You know, he kept things really straight. But I didn't. I was too young to uh, to really sense Scott's political, you know, persuasions were. Um, you know, Scott has had a reputation uh, as quite a Hollywood playboy. Right. And that was something that I was that I was that was I was aware of on the set. Um, he was dating Heather Locklear at the time, and um, there was some. You know, he would joke with with Willie about you know dating her and stuff like that. And I was just old enough to kind of <laughs> recognize this kind of you know that he was you know he was dating a very attractive Hollywood who was a superstar at the time. You know, Heather Locklear in the mid '80s was was a real superstar. Yeah, because he had those two shows on VH1, basically chronicling his like love life and then trying to get married, on, you know, on on, on the right, show. Right, ended up getting to that woman. Um, those shows were produced by um, one of his friends, yeah. named Jason Hervey. Right, from Wonder Years. Huh. Yep, from the Wonder Years. And uh, but you know, um, because I've been in Atlanta for so long, I've been really removed from from most direct interactions with people, although. Um, people that I interacted with uh, quite a bit when I was younger, some of them have stayed in the business and can continue to be, you know, very successful. And that's, I think, re- rewarding and refreshing to see um, people like Jerry O'Donnell and Seth Dean and, uh, you know, a few other Scott Grimes. These right. are people that when I was when I was auditioning and growing up, they were around my age. You know, I was, you know, I was auditioning for roles that they were up for and so forth. Yeah, it's it's nice to see actually Scott Grimes on TV again with the Orville, and that show's pretty funny. Yeah, and uh, you know Jerry O'Donnell was he was out of New York, and I remember sitting down and reading for Big with okay. Jerry O'Donnell, and neither of us were hired for that movie, but um, I also remember reading with him as one of the combinations of actors for Stand by Me, which. Uh, I was very close, you know, one of those things that, again, I was casting, and it was just one of those things where I wasn't the right kid for that time, but, you know, I got a chance to, you know, read with some of those actors and and, uh, and so forth. It was, it was a good experience. These are good experiences. Right. Now, I don't know if this is true. I can't find pr- uh, proof anywhere. Did you have a, a small cameo in Karate Kid 2? I did not. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, because uh, there's one kid in the beginning that asks uh, Ralph Macchio for an autograph, and it looks like it could have been you. So I thought I was I wanted to just confirm that that it wasn't. <laughs> no, no, you know, um, 
my 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 feature film work is very limited, and the only one that really I, I where I had a real decent role in uh, was a, a movie where I played Paul Simon's son that came out in 1980 called Electric Pony. Right. Um, it's a movie that not many people have seen, but uh, it was a really cool experience for me. I was I was seven years old, roughly, and uh, you know got to work on a feature film, that, you know, starring a, a really world famous musician. <laughs> So that was an exciting, fun experience, and I was treated very well in that. Oh, that's great. That as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Paul Simon. Yeah, he's he's legendary. <laughs> he is legendary, and uh, again, you know, sometimes when you're when you're a kid, you're usually treat, you know, for the most part, people go out of their way uh, in, in on on set to sort of be nice and considerate of you. I mean, there's always exceptions, but in general, people will try to, you know, there's level of decorum and, and people being nice to you is, is higher. Even people who later develop reputations as being difficult to work with, or, you know, some people are not always the nicest human beings. My experience typically was, was mostly positive on, on set, on, on almost everything I did. Right, uh, that's great. Now, someone who is having, you know, I don't know if it was difficulties on set, but now he's bringing it public. Was Alex, you know, Polinsky? Uh, he's brought up through social media, basically calling out Scott Baio, you know, to talk to him and stuff like that. Um, do you know anything about that, or can you comment on that? I don't know any details about what may or may not have happened to Alex, um, or what specifically he's referring to. Um, I think. Alex is a very unique individual, and I, I'm not sure why he, that he felt that this was the best avenue for him to pursue these, you know, what his claims are. Um, but it did get some attention. Um, it concerned me enough that I reached out to Alex, and we had a, a, a good conversation about it without him getting into further detail with me about it. But um, all I can tell you is that my experience on set with Scott. And Willie and my Charles in Charge experience, I, I didn't see, there was nothing that I could tell you was abusive. Um, we had a, a director on the show um, who was pretty famous in the world of television, whose name was Alan Raskin. Okay. And he didn't, he didn't direct the episodes of, uh, of the show that Alex was on. And he was from the old school, and he would occasionally could be harsh and impatient with actors, including kids. Um, I wouldn't consider it to be abusive but it was a different era and I, I don't know that you know maybe a, a, a director like him could get away with sort of being as rough and gruff as he was then nowadays but certainly I can't tell you that there was any anything that rose to the level of physical or, 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 or mental abuse on set you know in my and whatever happened to Alex is, is obviously between him and, and Scott or or someone else, you know, he alluded to he needed to talk to Scott about it. I don't know that he was actually accusing Scott of, of, of the abuse, so I think that needs to be clarified as well. Right, yeah, and Scott did issue a statement, I think, through the, acquire, the Inquirer and then posted it on social media as well, so hopefully Alice can get some sort of closure or, you know, on this whole subject. Yeah, I, I wish him nothing but, you know, but, but uh, you know, peace of mind and, and closure and whatever whatever his issues are yeah um, uh, the reality is that you know there are some there there are and have been some really bad people in Hollywood that have done some really bad things to some to some people and 
you know, what we're seeing in, in, in public with the sexual harassment is, is one side of it. And uh, the, the other side of it that's even darker that deals with, um, you know, kids and stuff, you know, I, I can't tell you that that doesn't exist either. All I can tell you is that I never experienced it, fortunately. And perhaps it's because I, you know, my mom was on set almost all the time. I, you know, I had very close guardians watching me over me and stuff. And, and so, but, you know, those people are out there. Yeah, I, I, I've, I worked in TV sports and TV news for years. So you definitely, the, the, the culture is there and it's definitely, you know, difficult to see. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, unfortunately, it's it's a man's business, and you know, women in there are, you know, the minority, and it's they should still be treated equals, and unfortunately, sometimes they're not. No, then there's an often in, in the entertainment industry, there's an unequal power dynamic, and that plays a huge role in these things, and and, and that's why you've seen a lot of uh, what what has happened recently happen, because you know people are just not aren't cognizant of the power dynamic that. That can take something that's, yeah, there's just an unequal power dynamic, and it's, it's not good. No. Now, are you able to separate, say, someone who's accused of, you know, har- a horrible thing and their work? Are you able to watch that person's work anymore? You know, that's a good question. I, I, I think I, I'm able to, to some degree. Uh, I think everybody's mileage will vary depending on where they're coming from. But, um, yeah, you know, it's, it, I'm still processing a lot of that, I will say. You know, right. Louis C.K. is the first person that comes to mind. Of course, yeah. You know, you know, when I think about that, and I think about how good his work is and was, and then I think about, oh, but he was doing this. And, you know, I, 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 it's, it's hard. Um, you know, it's, Woody Allen is another one where people look at him as this great auteur, but there's also this weird darkness of, you know, him, you know, marrying his adopted daughter, basically, yeah. you know. Um, so it's, it, it's definitely uncomfortable and a little uneasy sometimes. I'll, I will, I'll, I'll grant that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And another one is Kevin Spacey comes to mind. I mean, all his work is great and it's really hard just to, you know, separate it right now. Maybe, you know, yes. time will heal. But also, even if you look at, like, you know, the sports world, I mean, I was a huge Penn State football fan. And then mm-hmm. that whole, you know, situation, and then it's, I, I distanced myself from that whole, you know, program after that because it just, I could not, you know, in good conscience, just watch that anymore. Uh, I, I hear you, I, and I understand that. And, and, you know, people want to know what Joe Paterno knew and when, and you'll never really know. And, you know, what, it's, it's very difficult. It's, it's a very difficult situation. And um, I think, you know, not to pivot a little bit, but I'll, I'll tell you that in general, I, I, the, I, I have a very wariness of the celebrity culture, and I think that a lot of this stems from my experience with it um, and how people are human and uh, people under the spotlight don't, don't, aren't any less human than people who are not. And so I'm... I I'm, I'm tend to be giving people a lot, a lot, a lot more range of latitude for being imperfect, um, you know, for being imperfect people. That's not to say that I, I, I can defend anyone from, from sexual harassment or, or any kind of these horrible accusations that have come up, but just um, under the spotlight sometimes, people sometimes crack, and, it's, and, and that's just in general uh, that 
we didn't have a TMZ when I was a kid or anything like oh, that. Oh, of course, yeah. And I'm, I'm certainly, I'm certainly glad that I wasn't under the kind of scrutiny that young celebrities are under in this day and age, because I don't know how I would have handled it. Right, and then you, you even look at like you know all the the kids from Stranger Things and how they're under like a microscope now, and if you know, Absolutely. and if one of the one of the actors doesn't say hi to someone on the street and it gets videotaped, that person you know can tweet about it and post and and portrays them in a terrible light, and that's just not fair. Yeah, you know, when you're a uh, you know you do sign up for some degree of public interaction, but, you know, I can tell you that there's just times when maybe you're just not in the mood or the person catches you on the wrong day or, or uh, you know, you're just in an environment where, where people, uh, you know, will cross lines that are sort of unspoken. And, and it's, it's kind of hard to sometimes be polite and civil in those situations. And nowadays, that, uh, you know, that's spread all over the internet, and, you know, in, in an hour. So. Yeah, I know, it's, it's tough. But uh, so one more Charles in Charge question, actually, I just thought of. Um, when they brought back the show and they, they kind of introduced the Powells, you, you were there kind of passing the torch to the other kids. What was that experience like on set? You know, it was, it was, it was, a, it was an interesting, it was a weird, it was a weird feeling. Um, so a little background on that. They, uh, the show's off year for a year. And during that time, the, the kid who played my brother, um, Jonathan Ward, had gotten another TV show that was had been picked up for uh, some series. And uh, this was first run syndication, and they uh, so they couldn't get the whole family back. And then to top that off, the woman, uh, the, the woman who played my mother on the show, was not interested in coming back because they were offering the actors a lower pay scale for okay. the first run syndication versus network television. Right. So the combination of that basically meant that they wanted to write a transition episode, which Michael they had written, and they wanted me to come back and be part of that transition episode. And I agreed, And but they, the woman who played my mother would not agree to that, and she refused to do it. So they ended up hiring someone else to be the old mother. <laughs> <laughs> So here I am. I'm, you know, I'm the only, I'm the only person on set who's not going to continue on the show, you know, representing the old cast essentially. Right. And so I went out and did it because I, I wanted to do it. Um, I, I felt a connection to the to the show, and um, it was awkward in a way that I didn't expect. I, I it felt like I was handing off something I created to somebody totally new. Uh, I felt they didn't have the pressure of not knowing if they were going to be picked up or not because the series run was already ordered for an entire couple of years or something okay. at that point. Um, but the third thing was was that the kids that they had hired or the actors and actresses they had hired really had very limited experience um, with, with sitcom acting. So they were also learning. It was like their first episode. You know, with, you know, Nicole and Josie and, and Alex. And so I was sort of there and I was working with them, you know, I, you know, this is how you work with a, a four camera setup and stuff like that. Um, and it just made me feel a little odd. And I think I went home from that and I, I, I was able to let it go, but it was hard for somebody who was, I think I was probably 14 years old or so at that point to sort of, to just sort of watch that go away. And, um, 
it didn't go away because what happened was the show, the old episodes kept repeating. Yeah. And so I, you know, I was still in the public eye for some de- to some degree for the next few years, including, you know, when I went off to college. And I didn't really expect that because there wasn't the internet at that time. There wasn't YouTube. It was just reruns. But my reruns were still running. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a very odd experience. I remember uh, after I transferred to NYU where I walked into the dorm that I lived in and a bunch of probably like 10 kids, 10 or 12 people were sitting around the dorm TV in the lobby watching an episode of Charles and Charles that I was on. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and I'm sort of standing in the background going, this is kind of surreal. Yeah. <laughs> Not saying anything. Yeah. You know? uh, so, so, happening is, go ahead. Oh, so, so they didn't know it was you then? They, they didn't know it was me uh, at that point. I think it was early on. Eventually, what ends up happening, and this is what happens almost anywhere I go now, is that people eventually learn that I've done some acting work and are interested about it. Even in Spectrum, Wyoming, where people don't get to touch or, or not, you know, don't ever get to meet anybody that's done this kind of work before. People are genuinely curious and interested. Right. Yeah, no, that, that, I'm, I'm sure that had to be surreal. <laughs> that's right. It was. But, you know, uh, I, was, I, I was very blessed to have gotten a chance to do a network show for a year and to work with some great people and have great experience. And, you know, I have the DVDs to show my daughter and my kids when they're old enough to appreciate it. So when they get a little bit older and they, they come to you and your wife saying that they want to maybe start acting, how would you handle that? You know, um, I, I wouldn't dis- discourage them. I would tell, I would try to be honest with them about, you know, what the, the odds are, and, and uh, you know, I'm certainly not going to relocate my family for my children to have an opportunity to, to, uh, to get into acting, but if they want to go off to college in L.A. or New York or, or pursue the dramatic arts, um, you know, I'm happy to, to, to support what their dream is. Um, I'm very pragmatic about it. This is, it's a rough business, and your odds of success are minimal, and that's, that's just really, that's just feeling realistic. No matter how talented you are, there's tons of talented, tons of talented actors and actresses who are, you know, existing on the margins of the business. But I'd support them. I, I don't, I, I'm not against that business, but I think there's a point where you, as an adult, have to ask yourself if this is what you want to keep doing or if you want to have security pursue other interests for your family. In my case, I can tell you that one of the things that got me out of the business was that I had a lot of other interests and I wanted to be more in control of my own destiny. I didn't want my professional life to be at the hands of producers and casting agents and, and not have any control over that. And I knew that's how it was because I'd been doing it for 12, 13 years at that point. You know, that's, that, that's, a, that's a great point because, uh, I'm kind of in, in the same boat where you working and, you know, you at, are at the mercy of people renewing your contracts and, you know, shows. And it's, you know, it's tough. It really is to be kind of in limbo like that. It, it can be very tough. And it can, you know, they, the joke is you have to have elephant skin to be an actor because the amount of rejection is so intense. And I knew that from early on. And, you know, when your livelihood isn't as dependent on it you, you can have and you have elephant skin you're okay but when you're you know when you're 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 like your life where you have children or you want to start a family and that kind of a thing and, and you're depending you're just trying to get jobs it can be really i think that could be really stressful and uh the other thing that's, that happens and this happens to some some kid actors and actresses is that um they don't have other skills or interests 
and right. so they stay in the business and things change and you know they're not able to continue to be successful and then they don't have coping mechanisms to deal with that and the, the carnage is you know is well publicized yeah and, and that's that could be also not having a great support team with you correct correct that can also be not having a great support system it can you know it can be uh, you know it, it can be any number of it could be any number of things for sure um you know when you're uh, a kid actor you do see things like um kids who are clearly their family's meal ticket you know yeah. who the parents are maybe living on their on their kids earnings and that is not a healthy dynamic to have as, as a child you know and uh it's, it doesn't often end well no, definitely not. Definitely not. Now, I just want to talk about something you mentioned earlier on. You you were a sports editor, right, for the newspaper in, Jack, in Jackson Hole? That's correct. I was a, I was a sports editor for a, uh, a, a, our weekly and daily newspaper in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, for about six years. Uh, a job I really enjoyed. Yeah, so w- what did you cover there? What type of well, sports? Well, you know, I, so I covered, in addition to the high school sports, I would, my coverage area was like, we was the outdoors. We had some world class skiers. We had a couple of Olympic skiers that I would cover. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of serious elite endurance athletes in those communities, and it was really a job to put me, to get me really involved in the in the community of uh, of a world class downtown. And uh, I have a lot of wonderful friends that still live there, and um, I had a, a good opportunity to develop relationships with some some great skiers and snowboarders, and as well as you know, just writing standard high school sports type athlete, you know, high school sports stories. It's sort of a twofold job. You got the high school beat, and then you got the everything else. Then the everything else was sometimes a lot more interesting than the high school beat. Right. So you must be pretty excited about the Olympics starting this week. Yeah. Um, uh, it's funny. Uh, a skier uh, who I, I covered when she was um, 18, 19 years old is, is now still. 19, 20 years old, she's still racing at the World Cup level. Her name is Racy Stiegler, and she's going to hopefully make the Olympics in slalom again for the third time. The girl has had multiple injuries and bounced back, and she doesn't get a lot of press because Michaela Schifrin is such an incredible, you know, one of the best years in the world. But uh, Racy has been plugging away at it, you know, you know, uh, for a long time. And uh, so, yeah, I will be following the Olympics. It's, it's great to have people that you know. Uh, he was excelling on a world class on, on on stage. Yeah, absolutely. I always find the winter ones are you know more exciting than the summer ones. Anyway. Uh, that's me, might be personally, but uh, it seems like you're a, you're a hockey person. Is that correct? Yes, I am. So uh, you're. Uh, I, I was an Islanders fan. Oh, me too. Up. Me too. <laughs> but uh, but my you know I haven't followed the NHL that closely anymore uh, in in recent years for you know being busy and stuff like that. But uh, it's a great sport. I believe the NHL is the greatest in-person viewing experience. Does not translate well to TV. Oh yeah, what well, sport to watch in person? I, I, absolutely, absolutely. And I tell anybody you know who doesn't want to watch a game, just go to one live. You'll love it forever. It's like the reverse of football, where football live is like it's it's terrible. It's made for TV. Correct. No, the NHL hockey is made for the live for for the in-person experience. It's yeah. Absolutely true. Yeah, and, and the Olympics should be interesting because the NHL isn't there, so it, it should be interesting to see what kind of a competitive uh, tournament it, it is. Yeah, that'll be different this year for sure. Yeah. Michael, thank you for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it, and uh, best of luck. Thank you very much. I appreciate talking to you. Uh, thanks a lot.
And a special thanks to Michael for joining us today. Be sure to follow Michael on Twitter at Michael Promo. You can follow me on Twitter as well at the first Noel 19 Be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. While you're there, you can check out the next episodes. You can go to Facebook. You can look up Reliving My Youth. And you can also like the page. A special thanks to everyone who's listening. I can't do it without you guys. And be on the lookout for another episode of Reliving My Youth real soon.